0: How do we go from a theatrical art form to the art of bedside medicine? Can training and improv help make the doctor-patient relationship more fulfilling for both sides of the equation? This is the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD and I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. With me today is Valerie Lance Geffro, Improvisation Program Leader at the Allen Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York. Today we're discussing the center and how their work is making positive changes in the way scientists and healthcare professionals communicate with those we serve. Valerie, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. It's nice to meet you. So my first question is, what is the problem? A lot of doctors think they're great communicators. Can you comment on this? Tell me your feelings. Yeah, I don't think this is
1: exclusive to doctors. I think a lot of us think that we've communicated well. And what you work on when you're working on improvisation is shifting that philosophy off of what I think I've done to a recognition of what the other person has experienced. And so... I think doctors are in much higher pressure situations to communicate clearly, but I think this is a problem that all of us <laughs> need to tackle and get better at.
0: I think you're right, and of course, we don't get any training in communication or compassion in medical school or in our residency training. So tell us about the Allen Alda Center.
1: The Alda Center was formed about 2009 when Alan had an idea that sprang up based on his work with Scientific American Frontiers. I don't know if you remember that show, but it ran for 11 seasons. And during the course of that time, he interacted with hundreds of scientists, that the number is something like 700 scientists that he spoke to and worked with in that show. And what evolved out of that process was a really different kind of communication about science, where science wasn't just sprayed to the public in factual packaging. It was something that was all based on conversation. And Alan is probably one of the most humble people I've ever met in my life. And he says that he just depended on his natural ignorance. When he didn't understand what a scientist was saying, he would make them say it differently or make them say it again. And he spent a long time with these scientists, interacting with them, going to their labs, and getting to know them as people. And a real ease and vividness emerged out of these interactions, and he felt moved by that and thought, how could we help scientists and medical professionals to communicate in this way if I'm not there on the other side of the conversation, if I'm not there prompting them with questions? So he looked back in his own training, like, how do I do it? And he thought, the way that I know how to do it is from studying improvisation. So he did a few tests. He went and worked with medical students and scientists in several locations and just ran them through some improv workshops and looked at before and after in the way that they were communicating. It was sort of staggering how just in small experiences, short three or four-hour sessions of improvisation, people would emerge with a real change in the way that they were interacting with an audience. And so he shopped the idea around to a number of universities, and the then president of Stony Brook University, Shirley Strom Kenny took him up on the idea. And the Center for Communicating Science was formed under the School of Journalism and later renamed the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science. So that's sort of a very short version of a a lengthy process that brought us to where we are today.
0: Yeah, that is the process. And you left out one piece, which is a book he wrote, If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face, Which is a Good Place for People to Start. Exactly. And so the book, I think, is a good place for people to start reading and finding out about the principles. Is that correct?
1: That's right. This book was really called from the years of work that he's done through the Center and also in his independent research and working with scientists and understanding and thinking about what is empathy and what does that actually mean? And how do we accomplish that? So, the book is not about the center, but about the topic of empathy and uses that as a starting place. And there are many stories about the center, but it's a deep dive into what it is to be an empathetic communicator.
0: So, then that brings up the question in my mind empathy. Has anyone ever shown that empathetic conversation actually does improve patient outcomes?
1: From my understanding, there's research that backs that up. I don't have that at the tip of my fingertips, but what I do understand is that communication mishaps are responsible for a tremendous number of problems of patients not understanding what the course of treatment is, of them leaving not understanding even what their diagnosis is. I mean, over 50% is my understanding that are, of misunderstanding of diagnosis is based on a communication error. And so this is what we're working on. And what we think of when we're talking about improvisation is about putting the awareness of the speaker onto the needs of the audience or the other. In improv, it's your scene partner. And there's rules to follow to make that happen. It's the rule of yes and, which is, yes, I'm in a scene with this person, this person who happens to be somebody who doesn't understand why they should vaccinate their children. That's the scene that I'm in. And my obligation as an improviser is to figure out how to make that scene move forward in a positive way, not by telling them you're wrong, but by working to build on their knowledge so that they can move forward in the scene in some place of understanding. It's just a different philosophy than a lot of communication training.
0: Right. And one of the other rules of improv is there's only constellations, there's no stars. So it's the doctor's job not to have it be about them, but to have it be totally about supporting the patient. Is that correct?
1: That's right. And that actually takes us to rule number two of improv, which is make your partner look good. If you play by rule number one, the rule of yes and, you can often accomplish rule number two. But it's good to remember them both because sometimes yes and is difficult to accomplish. If you're dealing with a patient who's very difficult, very set in their ways, a patient who's yelling at you all of these kind of struggles that doctors face that most of the rest of us don't have to deal with, but you guys do. You're in the trenches dealing with life-threatening, very emotional situations, and just having some sort of technique to fall back on can be very helpful. And what we've found has been very moving to the doctors that we've worked with.
0: Is there a rule three?
1: There are many rules in any given improv exercise, but those are the two sort of foundational rules that every exercise
0: is backed up by. Thank you. If you've just tuned in, this is ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. I'm speaking with Valerie Lance Geffro, and she is the improvisation program leader at the Alan Alda Center for Communication Science in Stony Brook, New York, and we're talking about improv training and how it can help doctors be better communicators. Valerie, one of the things that I found on your website, which I found absolutely fascinating, and I think this will help explain to doctors what you're going for, is The Flame Challenge. Can you explain that to us in its beautiful simplicity and how it shows us how we can communicate?
1: The Flame Challenge was launched about five years ago when Alan was asked to write an article for Science Magazine. And he wanted to bring up a personal story about science communication. And so he looked back at the time when he was 11. He was a very curious child and really interested in science. And he was especially curious about what a flame was. You know, he thought, what is it? It's not, not not liquid, it's not solid. What what's going on there? And so he asked his science teacher, "What is a flame?" And she thought for a minute and she said, eh, "It's oxidation." And he he said, "Oh great, you know, she could have just named it Bob, you know. It meant absolutely nothing to him this jargony word." And so he challenged scientists at the end of the article to answer the question as though they were speaking to 11-year-olds. What is a flame? And it launched an international science contest that we've kept up for since that time, and we have real 11-year-old judges from around the world. Last year, I think we had something like 26,000 11-year-olds who judged the entries. Every year, the question changes, so it's fun because the scientists have to think about who this audience is, what do they know, what do they care about, and cater their entry to to those kids. Eleven year olds are a kind of great phase in their lives because they're really, really smart. It's not a coincidence that they came up with a game, "Are you smarter than a fifth grader?" I mean, these are really, really smart young people, and they're also still at a phase where they are not shy or nervous about asking follow-up questions. So it's a really prime age for being able to connect with a smart, inquisitive audience and to be able to get honest feedback. And they're also very honest about their feedback. So we have three different categories. You can enter with a written entry. You can enter with a video entry, or this year we have a new category, and that's the graphic entry, and that could be, you know, a cartoon or some kind of drawing that you've come up with. We've had some amazing cartoons over the years, but they've been sort of in the visual category competing with videos, and we felt like we wanted to kind of level the playing field and put them in their own category because the, the entries have just been
0: awesome. Well, actually, each of us physicians, when we're talking to a patient, has that flame challenge because we have to explain cancer or diabetes, or in my case as a dermatologist, trying to explain something as simple as eczema to a patient and watching their eyes glaze over if I use jargon. But if I find a way to have them understand it, the visit gets happier for both the patient and myself. I don't feel so frustrated.
1: Absolutely. And that's really the mission of the flame challenge the 11 year olds are awesome because they're a very clear, honest audience, but this is really a challenge for scientists and medical professionals to think about exercising the muscle of clear, vivid science communication. And so this is really a contest for you, not for the 11 year olds. The 11 year olds gain from your knowledge and the great examples that are brought to them, but this is really about you
0: okay, so I'm sitting in my office here in suburbia, and what can I do? I mean, tell me what I can do to start breaking into this and learning without signing up for a three-month course in Stony Brook, New York, and leaving my practice.
1: So the kind of improvisation training that we do is not sort of what is in the mainstream. A lot of people think of improvisation as being related to comedy, which it is. I mean, this is a very specific style of improv. But the work that we do is based on a practitioner named Viola Spolin, and she developed a series of improvisational theater games that actually were for immigrants coming into the projects in Chicago 50 years ago. And these were games that were about connecting communities, and listening and engaging and really bringing your fullest self to an encounter. So this is not about being funny or being entertaining. This is about building a greater sense of awareness and connection with the people that you're communicating with. Wireless spolen workshops are difficult to find, I will say. They're, they are out there. There are people that teach them But you'd have to look those up in your local community if you were, like you said, out in suburbia. The Alda Center also runs boot camps here that people come from far and wide to participate in, anywhere from two- to three-day boot camps that we have available to the public. And we're also providing, over the course of the next year, some more online resources to help think about if you don't have an opportunity to go and take a class or a course what can you do on your own to kind of polish up your skills and think about communication in a different way? So stay tuned to our website. We're supported by the Kavli Foundation, which has also been helping us to build a more robust web presence. So those are some ideas that I have for
0: you. Can you give us the website name so we can find it?
1: Sure, of course. It's aldacenter.org. center.org.
0: Thank you. And people can just sign up and start taking online courses or at least find out what's available.
1: Yeah, we have webinars that we're going to be doing this winter and spring on how do you figure out who your audience is How do you define a reasonable goal in an encounter? How do you get past the curse of knowledge? These kinds of things. And those will all be publicized on the website. And then I think they will run live and then also be there for you if you miss the live event to tune in and to catch later. So some different opportunities that people could not only watch but possibly participate in as well.
0: Well, thank you. That is brilliant. So my thanks to our guest, Valerie Lance Geffro, Improvisation Program Leader at the Allen Alda Center for Communicating Science. Valerie, it was great having you on the program.
1: Nice to speak to you.
0: To download this podcast and others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com or download the ReachMD app. We welcome you to share, like, and comment on this podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Greenberg, and this is ReachMD, inviting you to be part of the knowledge. And thank you for joining us.